everybody. This is Mike Halas from the Gazette, Sports Department, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, USA, Earth. <laughs> and we're all kind of in the same place right now, just in different locations. Uh, I wanted to do something different because I'm just kind of tired of, I'm not just kind of tired, I'm totally tired of sitting at my kitchen table by myself Monday through Friday staring out the window as the birds and the squirrels go about their business. And uh, I just wanted, you know, the, the Jordan thing, the documentary, The Last Dance, it's on ESPN every Sunday night for five weeks. Got me thinking I'd like to talk about this, but you can listen to Jordan talk, Last Dance talk, any place. And I'm sure you have if you follow sports. But I just wanted uh, to sort of see how it it uh, it touches people who aren't my age. To me, it's a trip down memory lane, and I love it. But it's not telling me a whole lot I don't already know. Uh, with me is Nathan Ford of the Gazette Sports Department, and he's a basketball fan. But Nathan, you didn't see Michael Jordan. Uh, that it, is not. this weird? It is. It is weird. Um, this was, I guess. You know, right before I would have started having any memories of watching basketball. I mean, I started watching. The reason I started even watching basketball was the Kobe and Shaq Lakers. That was my team. That's what got me started in sports. So to me, Michael Jordan growing up was that guy who tried to play for the Wizards for a couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) So this is weird. (laughs) So, I mean, that was a 38-year-old guy at the end of his string in hindsight that strikes me as sad that he did that yeah i remember i I read something the other day though that he had like a 50 point game and a 40 point game in back-to-back nights that season yeah i i remember like my dad saying that the kind of the same thing you did that it was just kind of you didn't want to see him fail basically because he had left winning the, the three straight titles again. But then I, I got curious the other night, and I looked up the stats, and yeah, he averaged like 20-something a game for the Wizards. I mean, as a guy in his upper 30s who hadn't played for three years. Uh, so it was kind of crazy. Well, uh, let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, I mentioned you're with the Gazette Sports Department, but what is your precise role? I am the digital sports editor. Okay. And, and I, as I mentioned to you before we started this, uh, there are, I guess, eight or nine people total on the sports staff. I think you and I are the only ones who like the NBA. Yeah, that sounds about right. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I, think it's I think it's kind of a trend in the state in general, maybe. Um, just because... Of the the popularity of of the Hawkeyes, obviously, but at the same time, that doesn't stop the the popularity of the NFL or MLB. So, I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't make a, a ton of sense to me. Um, obviously, I mean, a lot of it. If you're a sports fan, if you if you like basketball, how can you not be an NBA fan? Yeah, yeah, for sure, and. I'll be honest too, like when I was growing up, obviously the the Lakers really I fell in love with them first, but after 
Shaq was traded and before sort of that second championship era, I didn't follow the NBA quite as closely. I always gravitated toward college basketball more. I liked college a lot more. But, you know, ever since 2009 or so, I've been a huge NBA fan. And I don't know, some of the guys on our staff obviously were around during the the Magic and Bird era and some of the really most well-known eras of NBA basketball. And for some reason, it just like that kind of passionate fandom really hasn't stuck. Uh, everybody thinks that their favorite game is the best game. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I never understood that because first of all, they're all just games. They're all just children's games. I mean, you, you're, t- I don't care what it is, football, mm-hmm. baseball, soccer, hockey, basketball. There's not one game that's better than another game, is there? Uh, no. And I don't know. It's, I don't know if it's always like the game itself, maybe that, that, um, I mean, that's what people will say they're drawn to. But I don't know if there's certain parts of the NBA, just sort of the the individualness of it that maybe turns some people off. Whereas the, pe- the people that are bigger football fans will say it's the ultimate team sport because there's so many different roles. Or, you know, the same thing with soccer probably. Whereas basketball is such, as much as it is a team sport, I think, sort of the, the personalities shine a little bit more. And maybe that turns some people off. That's where it is, I, I think, is, is personalities. I mean, you look at basketball and you see the same thing in soccer. It's the strong personalities. I mean, you've got a five-week, two hours each week documentary on a basketball player who played a quarter century ago, roughly. Mm-hmm. there's nobody in baseball or football who you could sell that about you couldn't even i mean i can't even imagine baseball and with football i guess you could do something on the patriots dynasty or whatever but i think after a couple of weeks it would be like okay we get it enough yeah uh, there's just basketball players are charismatic people who we feel like we know intimately mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and while while that i think does turn off some sports fans who like maybe a more team instead of me deal. I think most of us, I mean, look, life is a star driven thing, whether it's show business, politics or sports, it's all about people and personalities. And and Michael Jordan is as captivating as has ever come across in sports. Yeah. And you can, you can see it in some of the old footage that's been on display the last three Sunday nights, just the absolute swarm of people that just wanted to get, just wanted to see him, whether or not they even got to meet him or get his autograph, just wanted to get a glimpse of the guy just out and about. And, you know, the one, the, the scene from last night when he's in his hotel room and just lamenting that he just can't really go outside um, if if he wants to have any sort of privacy is is a little bit striking. Yeah. That, I mean, to me, that was like the last days of the Beatles. 
and that's a that's a thing is I, the Bulls PR guy Tim Hallam they interviewed and and I know his name because he was very good to me on a few occasions. Uh, he said it. He said I I couldn't do that. I could I do I wouldn't want to be like Mike, uh, live that life, and it is it was just it was so all consuming and for so many years. And this is the thing, is the longer this goes on. This show's been going on for six episodes, and we've seen three of the six championship seasons. And each one mm-hmm. is such a grueling grind mm-hmm. that by the time you get to the end of these three-year stretches, you say, yeah, how could you take any more than that? Right. And the physical toll on the court, 100-some games, you know, playing in the Olympics, and it's the same thing overseas. All the attention. I mean, yeah, that that had to have been a lot to deal with. Well, um, I, t- I tell you, I mean, I was into the Bulls in those championship runs for different reasons. Uh, Jordan was one of those people you couldn't take your eyes off, of course. But there were other figures in the league at that time that we've seen. The, the Pistons and uh, Charles Barkley. You know, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were toward the end of their runs, but they were still Magic and Bird. But but uh, I can remember vividly where I was during some of those Bulls champion, uh, finals games. I mean, I was in a Motel 6 in Bloomington, Minnesota once. I was up there covering <laughs> a golf tournament. But on a Sunday night, uh, I had, you know, I, when the tournament was over with, I I rushed to get the writing done so I could get back and watch as much of the Bulls finals game as I could. I was in Vancouver once. Uh, I covered the U.S. Olympic wrestling trials in 1996 in Spokane, Washington, and I decided that I would tack on a few days of vacation and go to Seattle and Vancouver because I'd never been there and I was so close. I felt like I had to do that. Well, here I am in Vancouver, this vibrant, beautiful city one of the great cities of the planet, in my opinion, certainly North America. But on a Sunday, I'm locked up in my hotel room for two and a half hours to watch the Bulls in the finals. It was because I was afraid of what I would miss if I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, you kind of tape it. No, That's... I mean, but you got to, you have to experience it live, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. That, and, um... There are so many, I mean, as you watch this documentary, there are so many games that it's like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. But they're all in the back of your head if you lived at that time and followed it. Yeah. That says a lot because I I don't, I feel like I don't have the greatest memory of sporting events anyway, but I can't remember if you were to name a certain year and a certain championship, I can hardly even remember who won or who played who or what players were on which team, let alone where I was when I was watching it. So the fact that you can remember and recall exactly where you were watching that yeah. just and, speaks and to how, how, how captivating it was. I can't do that with very many other things. You know, I mean, I, the Super Bowls blur together and very few of them yeah. I even remember. Uh, baseball, it's just completely escaped me. <laughs> but, uh, but something else that factored into it, though, was it was Chicago. And we're talking about the 90s now. Mm-hmm. 
And outside of the 85 Bears, uh, Chicago was known for being losers in sports. They may, may have had teams with winning records, but they didn't win championships. They didn't win anything in baseball. Uh, the Bulls had never won a title before. The Bears had that one singular title and should have gotten more, but didn't. And then here comes a team that not only wins one, but, but just owns the league. Six championships in an eight-year period. It, it just felt so weird. This is Chicago doing this. You know, this wasn't Los Angeles or Dallas or you name it. And uh, it, took, it, it took a while to get used to that. And for a, a team that, that I found fascinating, they could hardly get any fans when, when Jordan was first coming into the league. They were, before he, before he was drafted, being outdrawn by the indoor soccer team. I mean, yeah, and and you look at the popularity of the just the NBA and then and the Bulls in the '90s. After that, it's just it's just funny to think about. Mm-hmm. I have personal memories too of uh, a couple times I went when Jordan was with the Bulls in their run, and before, uh, the, like I said, the Bulls were really good to uh, to the Gazette, and by the Gazette, I. I mean, in general, and me in specific. But my first week as a columnist at the Gazette was 1987, and I went to Chicago. The Bulls played the Knicks on a Friday night, and it was a different era, you know? We would go places and do things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember what how I pulled that off, how I said, look, uh, I want to go to Chicago and, you know, write something about the Bulls. This was 87 now. This was four years before their first title. But Jordan was already Jordan Mm -hmm. in the NBA. I mean, he was scoring 35 a night. He didn't have the team around him yet. And that season, they they were 40 and 42. But they were playing the Knicks a Friday night. And the Bulls, yeah, we got a space for you. Uh, I sat behind a basket at courtside on a baseline. Wow. I'm, watch, I'm watching Jordan's Bulls against, you know, the, the Knicks, and it was a terrific game. Jordan only scores 27 points, and I'm disappointed. <laughs> uh, they lost. I looked it up. They lost 110 to 109. I thought they won the game. They didn't. My memory isn't that clear. It was a million <laughs> years ago. But uh, what I remembered was that Jordan, you know, he scores 27, and I'm thinking, yeah, but there was nothing fantastic. You know, yeah, it's and 27's a lot of points. Okay, <laughs> he had had 61 the game before on the road, and it turns out you found out after the game that he was sick. He was, you know, okay, that makes sense. He only had 27 because he was sick, but it was just still sitting behind the baseline. I thought to myself then and now that if people could see these guys up close. I think it would alter the way they view the game. Uh, not everybody, maybe, but a lot of people. There's this. There was a reputation for a time, but before the post-Jordan era, when defense and hand-checking and mugging became a thing, the New York Knicks and and so forth, when they said, oh, NBA, they don't play defense, which was the most absurd thing in the world. <laughs> You know, I mean, you're talking about the best players in the world who are going to get embarrassed if they don't play defense. 
and you watch them courtside, and it's like every possession was a battle, basically. Uh, it was to me, it was spellbinding. What do you have memories of just like media scrums or anything? I mean, just watching it, watching the the scrums in the nineties, they're just like, you know, six rows deep. I don't know mm-hmm. how people even managed to, to get a question in. Yeah, I saw them several years apart or in, in Jordan's early time, as I referred to 87. Uh, it wasn't quite that bad. And, and in fact, the column I wrote was uh, I was able to see Jordan and his teammates watch a replay of the final play of the game when they thought a foul should have been called that wasn't called or something like that, or they thought that a defensive foul should have been an offensive foul. And I, and you were with them or in the background watching them watch that and maybe begrudgingly say, well, maybe the ref got it right. Although they didn't want to come out and say it. <laughs> they didn't protest loudly enough. It was like, yeah, okay. And what, uh, but okay. So that was 87, but then I was there again, in the 90s, when B.J. Armstrong was a part of things, the former Iowa player who was on the first three title teams. And, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, you know, like following the Pope around or something. <laughs> you, you, it, it's, it's like anything. Like you go to a Super Bowl or you go to any major event, you, you wait for all the camera swinging people to get what they want and get out of the way so you can get in there then and hopefully, you know, ask your own questions and be able to hear what the person's saying. But the thing about Jordan was, and and I interviewed Melissa Isaacson a few weeks ago, she covered the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune during part of that championship run. And she said that game after game, night after night, day after day, practice, games, home, road, it didn't matter that Jordan would stand there and answer every last question, Hmm. which you just don't get from people in that spot just because there's so much. And it's just all, you know, it just takes a toll after a while. And you could see it in the documentary that, yeah, it wears on you. And you get some of the same questions over and over. And some of the questions are absurd. And, And look, I ask questions in my job, and I'll be the first one to admit, I don't bat a thousand when it comes to asking great questions. You just can't. Mm-mm. Sometimes the, the poorest questions, they'll get the best answers, which is a whole different deal. But uh, I do remember that. The thing is, he would take a long time to come out because he wouldn't come out unless he looked impeccable. Huh. He'd, have, he'd have on one of his $500 suits, which is probably now a $2,000 suit, the tie, the everything. He, it was immaculate, and he wouldn't come out until he looked just right. He had that image he wanted to cultivate, and he wa- it's just the way he wanted to present himself. But then once he got out there, it's like, okay, uh, and stood there and stood there and stood there and stood there uh, answering the questions. And what struck me about one of these most recent episodes of The Last Dance was, and then after the press conference, he goes out into the hallway, and you're doing basically – the same thing all over again, except it's, you know, the embrace of people. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it's a full-time job after the full-time job. And so it's no wonder you saw him lying on that couch in the hotel room in a moment of candor saying that I'm not going to miss this. 
Right. And and like you said, it, it was probably worse on the road because every journalist in the on the, the road trips wanted the story of, you know, especially those last couple of years, are you coming back? They wanted the same story that's been told that he had already told, but they haven't had it for themselves. And every every fan that's there for the first time has the same story as every other fan he's he's met and it must have been so repetitive yeah i it's uh it's really something to see in in a capsule form like that because as it's happening you know it's one of those deals you can't see the forest for the trees mm-hmm. but when you see it all pulled together like that like i said moments ago that that any team could win six championships in that period of time I don't think you'll see it again because it just takes too much a toll. I mean, you saw Golden State last year. It was their fourth straight finals, right? And uh, do I have that right? Yeah, they they were in four in a row. But but it it breaks you down. And they broke broke down physically. But but at some point, it's like, I don't care how great you are. There's just too much scrutiny. This is too tiresome. This goes on too long. There's no respite from it. And you don't see it was that the, in football or baseball. Yeah, and it was the same thing as Jordan faced with with Kevin Durant last year. Like, are you leaving? Who's he in a fight with this week? Mm-hmm. Who does he actually get along with? And yeah, it just got it got tiring. And with Durant, that's a that's a good example, Nathan. I mean, Durant was in on you know a couple of championships. He went to Golden State for whatever reason he can give, but it's like, okay, this is the smooth and easy path to championships. And then you go through that ringer a couple of times and you say to yourself, okay, that's great. But is it that great? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, I mean, he, he's now he wants to go to Brooklyn and be the man and prove himself all over again. But uh, you're, you're with the circus for a couple of years like that, and it starts to beat you down. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you could see the just how emotional Jordan was after his first, and, and that was the, the peak for him. But then everything after that would have been unacceptable, basically, if he had played and not won a championship. And that that's just kind of the pressure he and most of the great players have put on themselves. What did the... Oh, the seminal moments in the NBA that, that resonate for you? Um, definitely uh, the Lakers 3P um, with Kobe and Shaq. Obviously, I mentioned that was what, that's how I really fell in love with sports. I, rem- I remember the day that Shaq was traded to Miami and sort of dealing with the business side of sports from my perspective from the first time. Um, I grew up, I think most kids expect (laughs) players to be loyal to their teams and loyal to them because they're such loyal fans, and you realize that's just not really how it works. So that's when I felt like I was sort of introduced uh, to that perspective, I would say LeBron getting drafted. I remember that. I remember 
people talking about him as the next Jordan. And obviously I didn't really fully understand what that meant, but I knew that this guy was supposed to be the greatest player in the NBA. And I would say most of the, most of the seminal moments uh, for me revolve around LeBron, whether it was the decision, his first title, his first title in Cleveland. And then, you know, obviously choosing to be part of the Lakers. Um, so most of those moments revolve around LeBron, but there's also the Warriors um, and just the way they changed the game, particularly Steph Curry. Um, it's just a completely different game watching it now compared to the highlights we see in some of these games. Mm-hmm. The spacing, the defense. I mean, it's just completely different. The three-point shot used to be, it wasn't a rarity, but it used to be just sort of almost a sidelight to the game. It was a situational thing. Mm-hmm. And I last night you saw Jordan made five and a half, and it was it's just like that is not done. Well, we see guys make five threes and a half quite a bit now. Yeah. I read he shot like 27% from three. Uh, that season, which nowadays would be a major minus on the resume. Yeah. Uh, I love watching the Warriors, though. I mean, I just, mm-hmm. I just, to me, it's just, and I'm not a, a fan of the team or anything. I just, it's just like that is, they, it, it's like you cannot watch that and tell me that's not beautiful when they're doing what they're doing at their best. And now I don't know if we'll ever really see that again, but when Curry and Thompson and Draymond Green and Durant were in sync, it's like, it just, it's sublime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my perspective, it was like, obviously the Lakers weren't great at when they started, when the Warriors started improving, but it was sort of tough to, reconcile with that because I wanted the Lakers to be the the good team and the Warriors were so unbeatable but I I think especially the couple years before Durant got there when Curry and Thompson just became such a revelation and Draymond Green was playing a sort of position that was almost new that was that was appointment TV because it was just something that was beautiful to watch something that hadn't been done on a basketball court before the uh, over the years I've sort of seen NBA in person and just you know dribs and drabs just basically in for a game because of circumstances and gone uh, but the but my best NBA memory in person was in San Antonio. It was during an Alamo Bowl week. Why else would I be in San Antonio? One of my, <laughs> you know, 20 or 25 trips to see Iowa play in the Alamo Bowl. And it's it so happened that the Dallas Mavericks were playing the Spurs in San Antonio that week. And back then the Spurs played in the Alamo Dome, which you know, wasn't really great for basketball, but <laughs> yeah. as you can imagine. But, but, uh, I asked the Spurs if I could get a press pass, and they said, sure, and they 
put me in a they didn't put me at press row. They put me at a in a in a chair a couple of rows behind the front row. That was fine with me, you know. So I'm sitting next to this guy who's kind of uh, oh how should I put this obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> And he is, I mean, he's just, he's kind of, he's really into it. And he's a Dallas fan and he's, he borderlines on being a maniac, but uh, he pulls back. He gets up on his feet. He starts yelling. He knows the ref's names. He's shouting encouragement directly at the players. I find it all quite ridiculous. And as time goes by, I realize that this guy is Mark Cuban. Oh my god! And, and this was early in Cuban's ownership with the Mavs, so he wasn't a household name then, but he was already a you know he was a little. This rich guy who had his toy of a team, and you know was making the trips to the games, and in in December for a regular season game, one of eighty two, and he's acting like it's game seven of the finals. <laughs> but it, but as the second half went along, it's like you know. I, I like this, though, because this is a guy who, okay, he owns a team, but he is so into it. And uh, on top of that, then, we watch one of the best regular season games that you're going to see. It went overtime. You had Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, David Robinson. Uh, it It was just fantastic. A young Tim Duncan. And they go to OT, and Dallas sneaks it out, and Cuban's on the court, you know, high-fiving the Maverick players, and Don Nelson, I think, is trying to avoid him. Don Nelson's the coach. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just, it was a draining game. And so afterwards, I went back to my hotel, and I thought, I should maybe write something about this. But to me, the story was Cuban. Yeah. What is it about the what is it about all this that that makes this guy go because he's you know got life on a string and why this? So I sent him an email. I found his email address online and this was the early days of email, folks. <laughs> but he was obviously a you know a high-tech wizard who was already more connected than I'll ever be when it comes to using you know the digital world. Well, I sent him an email just on a flyer. I figure it's a hundred to one shot. I hear back from him. I hear back from him the next morning. And I asked him, what is it about basketball that does it for you? And he gave me about a two paragraph answer, but it summed it up perfectly. And uh, from then on, I, I looked at him differently. It's like, it, he's not just, you know, this rich guy with his toy he's somebody who this is something that's in his dna he just loves it and he went to indiana university which is where you know if it didn't begin from there it surely was nurtured mm-hmm. but he wanted to make the nba better than it was and in some ways he did and has and he wanted to make it better for fans and in many ways he has and so i'll always speak well of mark cuban that's cool. You look at some of the owners now too. I mean, Steve Ballmer, along the same lines, is always down courtside, having crazy reactions to plays that are all over Twitter. He's like kind of the new Mark Cuban. I mean, it seems like 
some of these NBA owners are just super invested in regular season games, which is kind of different for the NBA. I mean, there's 82 games a year, and not every one is very memorable. But for these guys, they seem pretty invested. Yes. I uh, uh, so Something else comes to mind. 1985, Iowa's in the Rose Bowl. And I'm out in Southern California for the week. Ronnie Wester, the former Iowa great. What great is, I mean, he's one of the five best players the Hawkeyes have ever had. Some would say the best player. He's with the Lakers. But his NBA career never really took off because he had the knee issue that began at Iowa. It was a first-round draft pick, but it just he just never made an impact in the NBA as a player. It was health-related. Had he been healthy, a lot of people thought that he would have been a you know, potential all-star. Uh, so I think while I'm out there, I'm going to go to the forum, do a piece on Ronnie Lester. I go. They're playing the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors were not particularly good. The Lakers had Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And lo and behold, the Warriors beat them. It was just one of those nights. Joe Barry Carroll outplayed everybody, the Warriors center from Purdue, who didn't have that great a reputation. But that night he was on. The Lakers weren't. And what I remember were a couple of things is that after the game you would have thought, I mean, I'm, I'm a young guy who hadn't been in an NBA locker room, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, it's going to be a tomb in here. I go in, and, and Riley's telling the handful of reporters, you know, it's okay, come on in. It's, you know, it's, we lost one game, nobody died. And uh, talks frankly about it, we disperse. Well, I wanted to talk to Lester. Lester was already gone. And I am just like, oh, you got to be kidding me, because it's a hassle to get anywhere in L.A. Yeah. And to get from where I was staying, which was in West Covina, which is nowhere near Inglewood, which is where the Lakers played, it was a major effort, you know. So uh, to get the credential and make the trip, et cetera, et cetera, Lester's gone. The person I come to do a story on is gone. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, it's, it's just basically a punch to the gut. Here comes Magic Johnson to his locker. And... I went up to him and I said, uh, geez, I'm sorry to bother you, but I came here to do a story on Ronnie Lester and I was just wondering if you could talk to me about him. And Magic went on and on about him. Wow. It's like, here's a guy who's, you know, been approached for interviews 10 million times and he is freely talking about Ronnie Lester in the most glowing terms you know, just said that he was the best player I ever played against in college and that if he hadn't gotten hurt, how, you know, what a wonderful career he would have had here. And yeah, on and on, just glowing. He gave me the story. And okay, I walk away from that and it changes the way you look at people. Hmm. Uh, You know what? And maybe if I see Magic Johnson the next night, maybe he's not so gushing. But this was after they got beat at home. Uh, 
And he did it. And it was A, kindness, but B, it was sincere because they're, when, when, they, when these people talk about somebody else, uh, they generally don't pull punches. They, they, they mean what they say and they believe what they say, or they just, you know, fudge it and you can tell. Mm-hmm. And just to, to hear that respect for Ronnie Lester, that convinced me, okay, Ronnie Lester was everything everybody's ever said about him because Magic John said he was. Yeah, that carries a lot of weight. Uh, also, I, I will say that uh, walking down a hallway in the forum with uh, the Laker girls as we were leaving the building at the same time was not the worst experience for a guy <laughs> in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad nobody accidentally snapped a photo of you guys. It's a good, well, I, I didn't, I was a gentleman, but I, I at the same time, there's, there was no need for that. <laughs> what are you? Uh, what what has given you the most pleasure from watching this Jordan thing? Because we this will be the last thing we talk about. Um, I mean, you're in sports media. Do you look at this through a media? Yeah, thing? yeah, definitely. I mean, like I I pointed out the media scrums. I mean. That's kind of fascinating to me. Um, I don't, I don't know a lot about how NBA teams' relationships with media works, but I know, like you, you were mentioning your relationship with the PR man of the Bulls, and you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, media outlets in cities that don't have NBA teams getting that kind of access so easily. It Maybe if it was now. Right, like if it was planned, planned out, you know, months in advance, maybe. But yeah, you, could, you have to have a good reason it. for being there. You know, exactly, exactly. Yeah. The, another thing that caught my eye last night, I think it was last night, was um, Craig Sager was doing an interview with Michael Jordan in the hallway for a game. It was clearly a, a TNT interview, and a couple local TV guys just walk up, stick their mics in his face and get the same content. And I'm just laughing, like trying to imagine an NBA rights holder nowadays, allowing <laughs> something like that, a non exclusive interview with a superstar. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. No, no, it wouldn't. And at the same time, you know, there's less, in some ways there's less media than there was probably during the Bulls' run. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're going to see is that if I were to approach certain organizations, I might have an easier time now and than with others. But uh, the, the Bulls at that time, it was, it was basically kindness. I mean, I, I had much more success with the Bulls than I did with the Cubs. The Cubs have been real troublesome the last 10 or 15 years to the point where I just stopped going. Hmm. And I understand that because they've sort of become this whole different entity and they're enormously popular with media in the greater Chicago area and beyond. I also was thinking there's so many scenes where the players and coaches are there's they're just like reading the newspaper on the plane and you know obviously 
that doesn't happen anymore. But not not even that. But it's just I don't know if players are logging onto their their local media outlets necessarily necessarily to see what the local beat writer has to say. I mean, I'm sure they're aware of it, mm-hmm. but it's more probably yeah, it's people telling them right. Hey, some somebody wrote this about you, or they see something on social media, and mm-hmm. it was just so. Nathan, Interesting I feel that way about Iowa athletes. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, uh, I covered the basketball team, and you're you're around these guys for four or five months, and they get to know you by face, but I don't think they make any connection to what you write, whereas right. that used to be different because there was there were only X number of us, and we were it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just like a constant – news flow either it was a very clear cycle of what today's story is what tomorrow's story is mm-hmm. yeah and, those bulls knew sam smith they knew sam yeah. smith they knew they knew everything he wrote and you could see uh that one i can't remember which year it was might have been when they played detroit but the three riders had predicted they would lose in three, they would lose in four, they would lose in five. And Jordan knew exactly yep. the predictions of each, every single one. And that just, nobody would know that now. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. I mean, that was, that was beautiful. But, yeah. but it, you know what it, that also did is it, it gave accountability to those media people. Right. Uh, you know, it's like what I write, I, this, it's gotta be a, it's gotta be true. B, I've got to go to the locker room and face the people, uh, you know, the the subjects who I've written about, which is as it should be. And and, and going way back, this isn't to pat myself on the back because it's just something everybody does who has, you know, a, a conscience. But it's happened and I've seen it happen. It's happened nationally. It's happened locally where where people take their shots and then you don't see them. Mm. And uh, I always felt like if, if I wrote anything that was rough on anybody or disagreeable, I had to be at the very next media opportunity to look them in the eye and give them a chance to, you know, if they wanted to offer their version or just air me out, here I am. I'm not ducking yeah. you. I stand by what I wrote. And it's, it's uh that's that's still out there but there's just so many more media outlets that and and people who don't even cover the games you know who yeah. uh that I don't even know how the coaches and athletes keep track of all the stuff on <laughs> <laughs> well, from that perspective too there's there's such a clear line between media availability i guess now Whereas back then, you know, I've read about NBA reporters that were traveling with the team and could just run into a player at a restaurant and get a quote there or just have an, an off-the-record interview at some time. Whereas now, you have to go through so many media relations staffers if you want a, a one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Or you have, to, you have to be there at a certain time before the game or after the game when you're with, you know, 
untold, however many other reporters getting the same quotes. There's just not, there's such a clear line now between yeah. that and that there was before. Well, uh, most NBA, I, I don't know if all of them do, but, uh, and you see this in Major League Baseball now. The uh, They have press conferences before games. Yeah. And instead of, it used to be you just grab them in the dugout or grab them in a hallway. And now it's just like, look, we just to handle everybody in one fell swoop, let's let's do the, knock this off in 10 minutes before the game. However, I was in Atlanta, oh, several years ago. It was when Hoiberg was clearly going to get the Bulls job. And I was in Atlanta. I flew into Atlanta because I was covering the Masters and I was going to get a car in Atlanta and drive to Augusta. Well, the, the, the Phoenix Suns were playing in Atlanta that night, which would have had zero appeal to me, except that Phoenix at that time was coached by Jeff Hornacek, another former Iowa mm-hmm. State player who had coached in the NBA for a few years at that point. So I thought I would go to the Phoenix-Atlanta game to talk to Hornacek before the game to ask him to talk about Hoiberg and what Hoiberg should expect if he took that Bulls job. And the, there wasn't much of a traveling media corps with the Phoenix Suns because, A, they weren't very good that year. And, well, I mean, they were okay, but it was, you know, the Phoenix Suns, not a, not your – you don't have a, you know, posse of media chasing you around mm-hmm. the country. So I did get Hornacek in a hallway before the game, and uh, he answered my questions and was very kind with his time. And that was one time where I went to a game, interviewed a coach, and left and didn't stay for the game. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and I felt guilty about it because as I'm driving out of Atlanta – I'm thinking, geez, what if, you know, he got a couple technicals and got tossed or a brawl breaks <laughs> out or I miss one of the great games of all time. And then I got to my hotel somewhere between Atlanta and Augusta, turned on the TV, saw the highlights, and it's like, no, that was every bit as boring as you would have expected. <laughs> you mentioned the the accountability thing. Do you remember um, from last night's episode, do you remember when Sam Smith's book came out do you remember the reaction to that or did you yeah. read it at all? Yeah, I did read it. I, I couldn't wait to read it. Mm-hmm. And I'd read Sam extensively in the years before that, because the Chicago Tribune in those days was easily found in Cedar Rapids. And I, mm. I, you know, I would buy it on an almost daily basis. And during that bulls run, it was just great stuff. And also I knew one of the people who were one of their B writers, Melissa Isaacson was a Bulls beat writer for the Tribune for a few years. And she followed me at, at the Daily Iowan at Iowa, uh, just a major talent. In fact, when she was pregnant covering the team at one time, and more maybe more than once, but but Jordan would want to feel the baby, <laughs> which, I mean, it sounds inappropriate, but uh, he it was purely as, uh, you know, as people do, as as interested in, the baby. Hey, it wasn't because it's like, I don't, okay, I've explained it as much as I'm going to explain it, <laughs> but, but it was with the best intentions, but because he was just generally interested in, he could feel the baby kick, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, yeah, that, that, uh, 
certainly personalized it. But when I get the Smith's book, yeah, I mean, and it was one of those books that was radically different than most books out there mm-hmm. because it was just it 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 wasn't glossy. You know, Mike, guess what? Jordan's a human being and here's how. And it's not always rosy and they don't always get along and he does get gnarly and there are bumps along the way to championships. And yeah, the other team did have rules that were, you know, not very nice about uh, how to defend Jordan. I loved it. I I mean, I inhaled it, but you Mm. could see why that some, some of the Bulls players and coaches would, would hate it, but uh, to me, it was Sam Smith was not your typical sports writer, as he said on the documentary. He was a, you know, he was he came from a different world than most sports writers do, and he brought that mentality into it, and he never wavered. And but the the irony is that I think he still is, but I know that he was or has been for a few years an employee of the Bulls, writing for right. the Bulls which is more a commentary on the availability of sports media jobs now, especially for writers as much as anything. Well, that kind of brings me to this too. Um, I don't know if you saw Ken Burns' comments about the documentary, um, basically saying it wasn't journalism. Uh, I don't, I guess I don't know that it needs to be, but when you're watching it, are you sort of, taking notes of maybe how more favorable it is to Jordan than it should be at times. Yeah. And the, look, the fact that Jordan's production company is one of the players in this, you had to expect it. Yeah. And even when they're making him look not so good, it's not that bad. Right. You know, it's like it's very, leading yeah. to a good thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the gambling, they couldn't avoid the gambling stuff, but when it's over with, I think a lot of people said, oh, big deal. He's got the money. Is that such a big deal? Yeah. And maybe that's the right answer. But at the time, it was scandalous. <laughs> you know, then there have been things also that, that have been omitted or left alone. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, it's. You always have to look at these things as is. As, as, what is the lens of the people who are putting this out? Okay. Yeah. I don't worry about that because to me, from for me and people of my age, it is nostalgia, but it's also the the thing that I get the most enjoyment out of it is that footage that we haven't seen. Yeah. And uh, some of it is very small stuff, but just moments behind the curtain that you just cannot get. I don't care who you are, unless you're living it, you can't get it. And they're they're showing some of that. I mean, those guys last night, Pippen and Jordan and Harper, sitting in a training room, drinking beers and talking about what <laughs> yeah. it used to be. And Pippen clearly agitated that somebody's filming it, <laughs> uh, whereas Jordan simply didn't care. But 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 there was truth in that, you know. Uh, pro sports, I mean, you go back to that photo of Lenny Dawson of the Chiefs quarterback having a cigarette at halftime. <laughs> it's beyond comprehension now, but that was reality. <laughs> you know? uh, 
it was a different time. I, I was in Major League Baseball locker rooms or the, uh, in the 80s. In St. Louis, there was a keg of beer. <laughs> there, there was. It was just uh, – I remember Bob Horner, who was with the Braves for most of his career, but he wound up with the Cardinals. And there was a – on a Saturday night, after just about everybody had cleared out, there was a Japanese – TV crew in there because he had played in Japan and they were doing a story on Bob Horner and Bob Horner's in that locker room at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, drinking a beer and talking to these Japanese TV people. And I, and I thought to myself more than this is scandalous is this is great, (laughs) but, but times change and that's, no longer something that the teams want to be a part of having alcohol in the locker room. And then these guys getting into cars and driving home. Right. Yeah. It's such a tight ship now. Yeah. yeah, That's the, that's the stuff I really, I'm just left wanting more of after every episode is the, that footage that hasn't been seen. Mm -hmm. And I, I get why they have to, they sort of have to do the biographical stuff and introducing this final season. They, you have to set it up and go back to the the eighties and nineties and set everything up, but it's really that last season that I just and all that behind the scenes stuff that really captures my attention and that I I I want to see more of. What could you imagine now? I mean, you're up roughly the same age as as I was when the Bulls' run was going on. What today could you imagine? having this kind of a grip on people as they watch it quarter century later? Um, I think maybe staying in Chicago, I mean, that the, the 2016 Cubs team would, would be really pretty fascinating. Um, the only problem with that is it was such a young team. I don't know if the that sort of behind-the-scenes personality would have been there quite as much. But just with the the Joe Madden story and how some of the clubhouse rules or lack of rules were so different than what baseball had seen before when he when he took over managing the Rays and the Cubs, that might have been interesting to get a look at. I think from a from a global perspective, any kind of insight into Messi or Ronaldo particularly messy because he's such a, a closed book that would that would be fascinating maybe not so much to people that are into the bulls um, or as many Americans in general but from a world perspective I mean soccer is so, even more especially European soccer is even more closed off than what professional sports in the US are now I mean we very rarely even hear from Messi in any kind of interviews. So a behind the scenes look at at him or any of the the superstars in Europe would be would be really fascinating. And then uh, you know 20 years from now they might there might even be a, a greater appetite for that in the US than there would be now. Yeah, yep, very possible. I I, I would think a Tiger Woods retrospective in 20 years would do it. I, I just don't yeah. think you would have the behind the scenes, you know, footage, background, whatever, 
to make it particularly honest, but I, at the same time, there's so much available that, you know, for somebody who's 10 years old right now, when they're when they're 30, I think that they would find it extraordinarily fascinating. Also, yeah. I think that to a lesser degree than the Bulls, LeBron James, just because uh, uh, he's he bounced around Cleveland to Miami to Cleveland to the Lakers. Mm-hmm. At some points, much beloved. At some point, you know, not so much. I don't. I think when he was at Miami, not much. Right. Uh, sort of a villain more than a than a hero, but then his going back to Cleveland and getting that championship was a was a hell of a thing. And then late in his career, going to L.A. to try and reinvent himself, sort of, but to try and just take on something completely different. And being in the finals year after year after year after year. Uh, so so maybe him. I mean, boy, he's. You know, he's right there with Jordan in, in that if he's playing in the finals, I got to watch. I just have yeah, to. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, hey, uh, let's hang a 30 on this, as we used to say back in the <laughs> Jordan rules days in the newspaper business. That means that we're going to end this. I appreciate people taking the time to listen. I just thought that I'd do something different. And if anybody was interested, they could give a listen to it. And Nathan, thanks a lot for you uh, helping me out with this. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, I will ask, plead, beg. I'm at thegazette.com, the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Still trying to put out copy on a regular basis, week after week after week. We are open for business, folks. Thegazette.com. Once again, appreciate you listening, and thanks. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.